Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 20 through 26 as we continue in this three-part series on the resurrection. This is Easter. We're in the season of Easter, which means whatever we're doing in the year, we shut down to focus our eyes on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we did that starting last week. We looked at how the resurrection affects our past. And what that looked like was, you know, the things that we have done, our old life, our sin, our shame, how the resurrection wipes that clean. What I want to look at today is how the resurrection affects our future, meaning the, the hurt and the sickness and the death that uh, is so rampant, not only in the world, but in some of our lives right now. How can we experience hope for the future? The resurrection is the answer to that, and for that, I want to look directly at 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 20 through 26, as you're turning there, just to give you a little background on what Paul is doing, this text is a monster. This whole chap- chapter is the apex of resurrection text. So he's been talking about it for a, a while, a couple paragraphs, and he starts by saying in verse 1, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And in that succinct little uh, statement about what he believes the gospel is, is that Jesus died and was risen again. He was died, he buried, was risen again, and was seen by a bunch of people. But right there, locked up into the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the resurrection. And after that, he goes on to answer a series of rhetorical questions. These probably weren't rhetorical. They were probably being asked in the church that uh, Paul was uh, speaking to, probably in that circle of people that Paul was shepherding and pastoring. People were asking uh, from the Gnostics to uh, to the Sadducees, there was this common belief that the body does not experience resurrection. It is only spiritual Nobody cares about the body. God doesn't care about the body. That was some of the things that were, were being said. The body is evil. It's, it's something that we, we kind of leave aside when we die. Paul comes in on the scene and says, absolutely the, bo- uh, the body is resurrected. If the body isn't resurrected, and then he goes on from verses 12 through 19, if the body isn't resurrected, we Christians have no hope. Because if the body isn't resurrected, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you aren't going to rise from the dead. And if there is no resurrection from physical death, we have no hope. And he almost literally says, and if there is no bodily resurrection, Christians are among the silliest people in the world for what they believe. Because they're still in their sin, and they have no hope. And that's where we come upon our text in verse 20. I'm just going to start reading. You can follow along. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection... It is plain that he is uh, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. 
When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him. That is the hardest word to say over and over. Sorry. (laughs) Then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. That is the word of the Lord. Except for my little insert right there. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask God for a deep understanding and realization about what Paul is talking about right now. This, this thing that he spoke about that changed the world. We pray that in our little theaters we gather around your, uh, your word that our worlds would be changed. That this thing that perhaps some of us is Long-time seasoned Christians have heard so many times would become more vivid and more real than ever before. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you who, you who open the minds of people to understand and you who authored Scripture, I pray that you would bring those two together today as we open up Spirit-inspired Scripture you would open up our hearts and we would devour what you have spoken. And I pray not just that we would climb intellectually, not that we would have a a great Bible study, not that we could leave here with some fodder for our lunch conversations, but more, Lord. I pray for deep heart transformation. I pray for people in this building who are afraid to be unafraid. I pray for people in this building who are broken to be unbroken. I pray for people in this building who are shaken to be firm and maybe even stirred. You've got this, and you're not letting your people go. Inspire us to live today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Uh, some of you know, I just came back from a little sabbatical that I spent with uh, my family, uh, my wife Brianna and my two kids, Abby and Jude. Uh, and in that time, one of my favorite, just one of my favorite things to do, as I guess should be expected, was just hanging out with my kids, hanging out with my kids and wife, and just the sheer long amounts of time that I got, just uninterrupted amounts of time I got with my family, especially my daughter, Abby. There were moments where I would just spend just the whole day with her. I just got uninterrupted, unadulterated time with her, just got to see her in all of her humor and all of her charm and all of her sass. And as a dad, it just started, after a, a month or so, it just started to get to me. And I was like, it just hit this place where I was like, like bonding with my daughter. And I remember one particular moment, we were hanging out all day and she was making me laugh and I, I just got, I just hit that. It was just one of those moments where my emotions were a little wobbly and I was starting to bond with my daughter and I, I looked at her and I stopped what I was doing and I looked at her and I said, Abby, I'm just so glad I get to spend all of this time with you. And she put down what she was doing and she like tilted her head like she does and looked at me out of the corner of her eye and the uh, corners of her mouth went up in a grin. She said, yeah. And then she said, because you're going to die someday. 
And I was like, what did you just say? <laughs> she says, you're going to die someday, Daddy. We're all going to die, and you're going to die too. And I was like, this is not the way that I envisioned this conversation to go. And in the last couple months, like, all these death conversations keep coming up. You know, like a dog dies or a loved one dies, and she just casually brings up this conversation of death. And she did it once with, uh, with Brianna. They were together in the kitchen, uh, and she, <laughs> Abby threw out, like, I'm going to die someday, Mom. I'm going to go to heaven, and you and Jude are going to miss me. And Brianna was just like, oh! <laughs> Another time, Abby took it a step farther with me, and she didn't just tell me I was going to die. She said, you're going to die like Jesus died. I was like, well, hold on. (laughs) Baby steps. (laughs) Uh, Just in the past month, I've just been so shocked by my daughter. And I know this is just like a three-year-old thing. They're just just unashamedly curious about everything. She has no grasp, you know, at this moment about death and trying to explain it to her, but she's not afraid. She wants to talk about it. She confronts it. Just a casual dinner conversation. Let's talk about death. Ah. And as I've been mulling over some of these good memories with her, I realized, you know, the difference between her and me isn't that I have this concept of death down and she doesn't. It's that she's willing to face it, and I'm not. Unless I have to go to a funeral or preach a text on death, chances are I'm not, I'm not spending a lot of time thinking about it. But death is something that we have to face. Not just literally, but we have to, we have to, we have to look upon it and think through it. Death is something that we all have to face. And Paul writes this long passage in 1 Corinthians 15 to confront us with this concept and reality of death. He wants us to face it. But he wants us to face it not out of confusion, not out of empty, bottomless questions, but with a grounded, objective hope. You might be asking this question why is life so fragile? Why do people die? Why do things die? And Paul's immediate statement, answering this question that some of us are asking is right out the bat. Here's why life is so fragile. Death entered into the world. Death entered the world by sin. He says this a couple times. In verse uh, verse 21, he says, For as by a man came death, Look again at verse 22, at the beginning of verse 22. For as in Adam all die. And so we have this picture of death as a, a personified thing. He uses this personifying language about death. And it's not just this thing that he treats as a personified entity, but it actually affects individual people. We all die as Adam died. It's this thing that's around us that we cannot avoid. Death, when your body ceases to function. Perhaps our worst fear, certainly the great equalizer. For it's the only fear out there that none of us can avoid. No matter how much money you have, how much power you have, how many friends you have, it is always going to be there whether you ignore it like I did or not. And yet it's not the only thing that's wrong with the world. It is simply one of the worst things. Death is simply, as Paul says in verse 26, the last enemy. 
the last of other enemies in verse 24. Specifically, every rule and every authority and every power. It's just the last and greatest of them all. And so, we have this implication here that death is here. It's unavoidable and it's coming with friends. It's not just biological death, but with death comes decay. And when I speak of decay, I'm speaking of things breaking, not functioning properly, things that just don't work right. Now, he doesn't get into it in 1 Corinthians 15, but he gets into it in Romans chapter 8 when he says in verse 20 that creation was subject to futility. You know, that word futility can also uh, mean vanity. Uh, Specifically, this is probably an easier word, uh, pointlessness or aimlessness. When Paul speaks of futility, he's speaking about this sense that you just have no direction. There's nowhere, there's no forward movement. What is the point of all of this? You ever feel like that? You might not have died biologically, I mean, if you're here, but have you felt this sense of futility? It might be in a, uh, what you, you might feel like you're in a dead-end job. There's, no, there's a ceiling to your efforts. There's no forward movement. Perhaps your employer doesn't trust you. Perhaps you've, there's no challenge uh, in your job for for uh, who you are. It doesn't incorporate your giftings. You don't see any forward movement at all. No challenges, no incorporating of your gifts. You might even be making a lot of money, but that doesn't matter. You feel you're caught in this sense of directionlessness, this aimlessness, this pointlessness. You might feel like that in your job or in a relationship or something, but the Bible says that all of life can look that way. The book of Ecclesiastes actually says exactly that. Ecclesiastes is an answer to an Alex Trebek question. What is life outside of God's influence? All is vanity, says Solomon. All of this comes as a symptom of death. Outside of God's influence, outside of his kingdom... There's a sense of pointlessness and aimlessness. Not only that, Paul says in the next verse, Romans 8, 21, that creation itself is in bondage to corruption. So there's not just a sense of aimlessness, but uh, creation itself, everything that we can touch and see, is broken. It's decaying. He goes on to say in Romans 8, 22, that uh, all of creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth. I heard this mom of three once say, what does Paul know about childbirth? (laughs) He doesn't. But he knows a little bit about suffering and pain. And right here he is using every analogy and metaphor he can to try to explain something that is perhaps hard for us to understand. That all of creation, including us, is groaning in suffering and pain wanting to be released to what we are truly created for. And we use death not just to refer to the destruction of the body, but to all sorts of things. Someone might say, my, my kidneys are dying. Another might say, my dreams, are, my dreams died. Another might say, my job is killing me. Someone else might say, my marriage is dead. Death. Death both literally and figuratively stands for and is everything that is wrong 
with the world around us. It is the author and apex of our suffering. It is the reversal of God's blessing. It is the unavoidable reminder that we live in a world that has stepped away from God's design, a world filled with sin. And it is that very thing, death, that Jesus defeated when he himself rose from the dead. See what Paul is saying? He rose from death. He escaped its grasp. He didn't just escape from death. He slapped it silly. He put death in his own grave, as a lyric uh, uh, pithily points out. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just that Jesus died, but he trampled on death. And locked up in that is not just that Jesus died to wash away your sins, but that he rose to restore everything that is broken. It's the restoration of all things. Why is life so fragile? Because of sin and death. What is the good news of the gospel? That Jesus himself will put it all back together. In at least two ways, right? Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, but also, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The restoration of all things starts right now with individual people, believers, Well, the follower of Jesus Christ is promised to be made alive like never before. Now, perhaps this talk of resurrection, being made alive, isn't that good of news for you. Perhaps you would say, you know, think of the resurrection as merely being brought back to breathe again. And think of my my grandma who died when I was nine from cancer. And her last stages on her deathbed, looking at her knowing my grandma who was filled with joy and laughter used to beat me at Pac-Man and Asteroid back when the Atari was uh, all the rage. She'd hold me and make me a breakfast burrito and give me a smile that would, send me, uh, that would pave the way for the rest of my day. And I'd see her in that wheelchair as a nine-year-old with the life drawn out of her, the joy drawn out of her. You ask me then, is resurrection good news? I don't want her to go back to that. You know what some of her last words were? She told my dad, I want to go home to see Jesus. I want to be done with this. I want to to go to heaven to see Jesus. Tell me this, who after suffering in this body for decades wants to live again in the bondage of decay? So you say, why is resurrection good news when there is so much bad news in the life that we have right now? Paul does say it's good news, but why? The key to understanding all of this is locked up in two words. I want to show you them. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Look down at verse 23. Read that with me. But each in his own order. First, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. First fruits, the key to understanding not only what Paul is saying, but why this is the best news you've ever heard. You know what first fruits means? It means, on one's, in one sense, that he's the first of many, like he's the first one to be raised from the dead. But it also means, in another sense, that he's the first of his kind. 
We could, also, we could also say that when Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits, he's calling him a prototype. He's the first not only in order, but also in kind. Here's what I mean. Paul says that it's not just immaterial creation that groans and suffers, but we do too. He said in Romans 8, 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, speaking of believers, we're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for something that's coming. What's coming? He says the adoption is sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, the renewal of our bodies. Jesus is the prototype for what we are supposed to experience, for what we are created for. This type of physical life experienced by Jesus is what the follower of Jesus will also experience. That's what Paul means when he says first fruits. He's the first in order, but he's also the first in kind. Look to Jesus if you want to see what you're headed towards. Now, if Jesus is the first fruits of what is to come for all of his disciples, you have to ask out of curiosity, what kind of body was Jesus raised to? This is where it gets wild. When you read the resurrection accounts of Jesus, you, like, one of the first things you probably notice is that he's completely healed, save for a couple wounds in his hands and in his side to prove to his disciples that it's really him. But think of everything else. Jesus was scourged. He was flayed alive by a Roman cat of nine tails. His body was hanging in sinews. He was beaten almost to the bone. On his head was pressed a crown of thorns into his skull. His beard ripped out, his face beaten. And he was crucified. When he's seen risen from the dead, his body is completely healed, except for that which the prophet said was needed to prove that he was the Messiah. Body completely healed. No decay, no death, no suffering, no pain. But it gets even better. In John chapter 20, verse 15, when he appears to Mary, she doesn't even recognize him. This is his mom. His own mama don't recognize him. You know what what she thinks he is? She thinks he's the gardener. He's not a different human. He's the same Jesus. But there is something about this Jesus that is so different about the quality of his life, I think, that Mary, his own mama, doesn't even notice at at first. Of course, when he speaks certain words to her, she immediately sees and recognizes. In Luke chapter 24, verse 15, his own disciples didn't recognize him. He's walking with them, talking with them. They don't even recognize him. These were 12 boys who had been with him every single day for three years. His own mom, his best friends don't recognize him. Why? Could it be that his body in a glorified state was so filled with a different type of life that his disciples in their early state, his mom in, their, in, her, in her earthly state, didn't even recognize him at first? Oh, it gets even more wild than that. You want to get wild with me? John chapter 20, verse 19. And in a couple other places in the Gospels, Jesus just kind of appears in the room. The doors are shut. How did he get in there? I don't know. Well, he's God. He can do that. 
He's a spirit. He can just kind of be wherever, you know? That's how spirits work. That's exactly what the disciples thought. You know what Jesus said to them? Turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 36. I don't know if he appeared in the room or he went through the walls, but I'm, 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 I'm claiming Jesus the transporter. <laughs> but lest you think that he's this intangible, wispy spirit. Look at this interchange between Jesus and his disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, right after Jesus rose from the dead, he had been scaring them on the road and in certain uh, instances, and they're talking about him by themselves in a room. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. Now, I don't know if Jesus said that calmly like I just did, or he just kind of like, it was quiet in a room or whatnot, and he snuck up and he was like, Peace to you! (laughs) I don't know. All I know is that in verse 37 it says, but they were startled and frightened and thought that he was a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. This isn't a ghost, this isn't a hallucination, and it's not just an intangible, untouchable spirit. It's me, same guy who walked with you, talked with you, ate with you. And he does two things to to prove to them. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. He eats food with them. He makes them touch his his hands and his feet to prove to them, I'm not just some spirit, and I'm certainly not a hallucination. This is the real deal. It's a physical body, but an altogether new kind of body. One that doesn't get sick, that doesn't decay, doesn't die, doesn't break down. And yet it's not only absent of weakness, but it seems to be filled with a new kind of power. It seems to be filled with a new kind of life from heaven that is so unadulterated in its capacity that his mom stutters at first. His disciples stutter at first. No one recognizes him until he begins to speak things that only they knew in conversation. When Jesus breaks the bread before the disciples and all of a sudden it connects and they're like, Jesus. The theologian Romano Gardini in his uh, classic biography, spiritual biography of Jesus in the 50s wrote this said again and again it is stressed, here is something far out of the ordinary. The Lord is transformed. His life is different from what it was. His existence incomprehensible. It has a new power that comes straight from the divine to which it constantly returns for replenishment. Yet it is corporal. The whole Jesus is contained in it, his essence and his character. More, his earthly life and passion and death are incorporated into it as his wounds show. Nothing is sloughed off. Nothing is left behind as unessential. Everything is tangible, though transformed reality. That reality of which we were given a premonition on the last journey to Jerusalem, the mysterious lightning-like flash of the transfiguration. Indeed, 
Only in the transformed existence does the body fully come into its own. Fitting quote, since today is Palm Sunday, the day we celebrate as the transfiguration, or as the coming of the king, excuse me. In other words, what Gardini is saying, he's not, I don't want to make a mistake here, I don't want us to hear a mistake, he's not saying that Jesus is a sinner like we are and he was made better. He's perfectly God without any sin or blemish, but in a human body. What's happening here is that we're being told, as Romano is explaining and as Paul is instructing, that Jesus' body is being glorified in a new way. When he rose from the dead, he was the first of many. His body was glorified. We can put it this way. It was fully becoming or growing into what it was meant to be, the human body. Now, after that, maybe Paul's whole passage on this will make a little more sense because he actually talks about this in our chapter, in verses 35 through 38. He actually says, but someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? If the resurrection is true, if my grandma has to come back from the dead, what's her body going to be look like? What's it going to look like? What's mine going to look like? What's it going to be like? Then he gives the answer. What a foolish question, (laughs) Paul. Then he gives this metaphor. He says, when you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put into the ground is not the plant that will later grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever it is that you are planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted into the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. Adam, the first man who was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and the heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Anybody pumped about that? Come on! Paul actually says later that Jesus himself will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He's the prototype of the rest to come. The first fruits of what awaits his people. In other words, here's why the gospel of the resurrection is good news. Because it's a resurrection, not a mere resuscitation. You're not just being brought back into the life you used to know. You're being brought into a life you have been dreaming about. A new way of life, not just a new chance at life. We will become what God intended since the beginning, though now we are broken and fallen. We're made in God's image, yes, but fragmented in our original design because of sin and death. But Christ will make us fully human in the resurrection of the dead. And that is why now we don't have to fear physical death or anything that the world or Satan can do. What can can man do to your body? If God has control of your soul. And T. Wright, 
we sometimes speak of someone who's been very ill, as being a shadow of their former self. If Paul is right, a Christian in the present life is a mere shadow of his or her future self. The self that person will be when the body that God has waiting in his heavenly storeroom is brought out, already made to measure, and put on over the present one. We are on a journey to become like Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. It's not merely forgiveness of sins. It is about conforming to Christ. It is about union with Jesus Christ. It is about the kingdom of heaven invading every molecule of your being. And it starts with resurrection. Where Jesus, by rising from the dead, takes the evil intention of death and sin, turns it around on its head, inserts into it hope and glory. I don't have to worry about my grandma. I can only imagine what the quality of her life is right now. She doesn't have a wheelchair anymore. Maybe she's transporting through walls just like Jesus did. (laughs) You know, even though that is later when the end comes, either when Christ comes back or we all pass into the next life, One thing is certain, as believers, we can experience a taste of that resurrection right now. And some of us are, through our union with Christ, through your new desires. You know what that is? That's your old desires being put to death and new desires being injected into your life. New power to live according to the kingdom of God. Things that you were unable to do in your past life because you were dead in your sin. Ephesians chapter 2, you are now made alive with God. Resurrection. Resurrection in the heart. Fruit of the Spirit. That is life-giving power of God being poured out on his church. The character uh, that we see throughout Scripture that we have studied so much in the last year, that is resurrection power. You can't make those things happen. That is a glimpse of the resurrection. A glimpse of the future resurrection bearing on our present. Say, why can't it all be good? Why do we only get a glimpse and a taste? I want it all now. Well, as Paul and Peter and Jesus himself would say over and over, we are right now sharing and participating in suffering so that Christ's strength might be perfected in it. And Paul would also say that that's why, because we're we're caught in this tension between a resurrection and between suffering. We're just right in the middle, caught in a tension. Paul says, in that tension, we see dimly. We see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. For now I know in part, and I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul is saying, we are seeing dimly right now what will one day be fully known. What your life is going to look like for all of you who have persevered in your faith in Christ. Fully alive, fully awake, fully known, fully knowing, fully joyful, fully glad, fully powerful, fully good. Our life is right now a direction towards that end and the end will come. But before that end, Paul says Jesus has to do one more thing. He has to put death away once and for all. 
Verse 24 through 26, he says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to Christ, uh, excuse me, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So he's destroying all of these enemies, these spiritual enemies. 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There will come a time when death is put away, but it has already been defeated. Jesus defeated it when he died on the cross and rose again. He nailed it to a wall. But he will put away its effects once and for all. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Revelation 1.18, And the living one, Jesus I died and behold, this is him speaking, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So what the resurrection did was it guaranteed that death would be put away once and for all. So we as a church are just waiting in hope for that moment to come. We're waiting in hope but also in tension. Because death is still active, death is still present. And all around us, we experience levels of decay. But make no mistake, the resurrection preaches to your heart and to mine. One day, death and its friends will be tossed away forever. Our loved ones won't die. Our bodies won't fall apart. We will live forever in the form that we were created for. There is hope after this life. Maybe as you're listening to that, you just want it so badly to be true. Maybe you believe that it is true. you still got your minds understandably hooked on the present. What am I supposed to do now? That's great that, you know, everything's going to be taken care of in the sweet by and by. Who knows how long that's going to take? Maybe Jesus will come 70 years from now. Maybe it'll be 1,000 years from now. Nobody knows. What am I going to do tomorrow? What do I do with this tension? where I believe that Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things new, but the life that I'm living in is filled with decay and suffering and difficulty and backbiting and relational brokenness and betrayal and lies and hurt and pain. What do I do about that as a believer, as a Christian? If we were to take Paul at face value, we would say this, that the Christian life is living in that fragile, broken environment with the hope of restoration as an ambassador. That life is fragile, yes. Restoration is coming, yes. We are the bridges between those two. We are the ambassadors that step into the mess, loudly proclaiming that there is hope to the lost. Loudly proclaiming hope to ourselves when we dare forget about it. Then when your life starts to fall apart, you can open up the scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and say, I know how this story ends. They can take my body, they can take my raise, they can take my employment, they can take my job, they can take my future security, but they can't take what God has planned for me. God has this down. 
and every amount of decay and suffering that I experience in this life is somehow going to be turned around to the ultimate goal God has for me. I don't understand it now, but this I do. God will not waste my suffering. That's what you say to yourself. Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead and promised that your life would look the same for all of those who are disciples of his, you know that you're on the right trajectory. Paul says, if that's true, live differently. He'll go on in, the, in verse 32 to say, hey, if there's no resurrection, do whatever you want. For tomorrow we die, and there's, that's the end of it. <laughs> but if there is a resurrection, stop sinning. Your life is going to last forever, and the choices you make today are forming who you are going to become. God has a, a design for who you're going to become. Take the plunge into the kingdom of God. It also gives us hope to those who have lost loved ones, to those who are losing loved ones, to those who are sick and ill, whose bodies aren't working quite the way that they used to. I turned uh, 35 last week, which is a weird place to be because everyone I know who's 20 laughs at me for being old, and everyone I know who's 50 laughs at me for being too young. So I'm like right in the middle of a spot where I don't belong anywhere, like (laughs) this pool of 30s. I don't have a place to belong. But one thing's certain, even though I'm not old and I'm not young, things change. Not drastically, not, not in a crazy, dramatic way, but little by little. Notice I I can't get by on four hours of sleep every night anymore. I notice when I lift the smallest things the wrong way, it actually does something to me, to my back. (laughs) I remember one day in the garage picking up Abby at the time, this was years ago, she was only like two pounds, and I picked her up, but I did like uh, like that, (laughs) which I guess you're not supposed to do picked her up, and this zing went through my spine, and I just fell to the ground. Went to the chiropractor. Chiropractor looked at me and said, what'd you do? Well, I just picked up my kid. She's like two pounds. So how, his follow-up question was, how old are you? 32 at the time. He was like, yep, sounds about right. <laughs> Welcome to the 30s. Those are small things. Stupid things, insignificant things. But in our, in our church are people with real things. Things that someday I'll have to face too, but that you're facing right now. I have friends in this building who are fighting cancer right now. Friends in this building who have battled glaucoma, infertility, Inability to have kids. Having kids and the kids were miscarried. The list is ongoing. My upstairs neighbor is blind. He has to have his groceries brought to him. My neighbor across the hall from where I live has Alzheimer's. 
And she can't remember the conversation that we had yesterday, which is the same conversation that we had the day before that, which is the same conversation that we had the day before that. It's like Groundhog's Day. And I, I look at her and I'm like, I can't imagine like, what this is like for your son to not be remembered by his mom. We're surrounded by death and decay. And the Christian has to constantly remember why they don't need to give up. I want to close this morning with Paul's reason why you don't need to give up. Long section of scripture, I'm just going to leave it in its unadulterated form. This is 2 Corinthians 4, starting in uh, verse 16. NLT, because I love how this reads. He says, this is why we never need to give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet, they produce for us glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that we cannot see. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things we can't see will last forever. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven. An eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. But for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. See, while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. This is what the resurrection says to those of you that are worried about your future. It says that God will finish everything that he started. He promised to do that in his son Jesus Christ and he finished what he started. And he's going to finish everything that he started with us as well. The question I want to leave with you this morning is has he started on you? Are you evading him? Are you trying to get through your earthly fears on your own? Are you so scared about the circumstances in your life right now that you try to brush them aside, keep yourself busy, medicate, do whatever it is that we silly humans do to try to get us through day by day? I just want to invite you today to confront those fears right now. Or if I can put it this way, let God confront them. He's not afraid of the same things you're afraid of. He's done everything that is needed to defeat your enemies. We're going to sing this morning about this king who conquered death. As we do, I just want you to meditate on these lyrics. Sing them too, but just let them get into your heart. Proclaim them and do this. 
posture of worship and reception until it begins to cling to your heart. Heavenly Father, have your way in our midst. In the name of Jesus, we pray.